0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Robin Conroy. I've got another Conroy joining me. (laughs) And I'm really thrilled to have Robin joining us for this week's episode. We're talking about kind of a new topic, something that we haven't talked about much, but we're talking about the animated films of Cartoon Saloon specifically. And Cartoon mm. Saloon are an Irish animation company that have been doing amazing work. And so it seems incredibly fitting to have an Irish animator (laughs) on talking with me. So Robin, if you just wanted to say maybe like a little bit about your background and what you're up to at the moment.
1: Yeah, so um, I've just finished a four-year degree in animation in IDT. And for my final year, I had to direct a short film and... At the moment, I'm in the process of kind of like sending it off to festivals and mm-hmm. you know getting it submitted in various different
0: places. Um, so and it's kind of a beautiful film. <laughs> it's really, really nice. It's called The Beekeeper. It is. And I got to see it at the Dublin Feminist Film Festival recently, Indeed. and it lived up to my expectations, which is always always a good sign. Yeah, it was really exciting to me to see you like as a young animator, kind of coming up and doing all these things. Unfortunately, because you're submitting it to film festivals you can't post it online yet yeah so hopefully someday soon we'll be able to yeah. give you a shout out and send out the link but Watch it's the space it will
1: be eventually online it's yeah
0: just like... it's for a good cause because it's it's going into festivals so mm-hmm. it's, it, it's good that it's getting into those festivals and yeah and it's, getting some recognition it's so really exciting. <laughs> and it was interesting to me because it it's about a little girl and a bear and Mm -hmm. how they have connection and a life together but it's very tied up in nature and has that sense of timelessness and and beautiful nature and (laughs) um, which in some ways feels quite familiar in terms of Obviously, it was very distinctively yours, but it did feel like it drew a little bit from some of the Irish animation that's been coming out Absolutely. recently. Absolutely.
1: Like, yeah, I think a combination of Miyazaki stuff with Ghibli, and then a lot of kind of cartoon saloon influences, and just in terms of the content and the pacing and stuff like that, like they were big inspirations for it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's so cool. And so I guess... The first thing we should do is maybe just give a little bit of an introduction to Cartoon Saloon then. So Cartoon Saloon are an animation company who have made a couple of TV series, but they're kind of most well known for their full length feature films. Mm -hmm. They are family movies, they are kid movies, but they're really, really beautiful. Their first two are the ones that we're going to be focusing on most. They have made... Another one since called The Breadwinner, which was also meant to be very good. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it, but in it terms of very good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have seen
0: it. <laughs> in terms of what we're talking about today, it's maybe kind of not quite as relevant anyway. But their first two films are The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, and mm-hmm. both of them have both elements. They're really rich in Irish culture, and they take great pains to be Irish movies. And they're Irish movies that are very universal I think they find audiences all over the world they're not so niche that only people from Ireland might appreciate them but they take a great joy in exploring and representing Irish culture I've been a big fan of them for a while I have I feel like I have just my own personal tiny little bit of a connection to them the company is from Kilkenny which is where I'm from it sort of began in the rooms of this This group in Kilkenny called Young Irish Filmmakers, which takes teenagers and puts them in this big old rambly building and says, (laughs) Go make movies, and does lessons in like screenwriting and directing and has a lot of the proper equipment dollies and uh, cranes. I think they made a crane at one point and proper like film cameras. And I attended it for a number of years when I was a teenager, but before me, Tom Moore, who was one of the founding members of Cartoon Saloon. Also went to Young Irish Filmmakers. And Young Irish Filmmakers also gave him, I think, like an office space when he came out of college to set up Cartoon Saloon. So there's this feeling of heritage that... um, It's in the room where it happened. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. So I've always really love to keep an eye on what they're doing and it's been fun. The the interesting thing about being in Filmmakers at that time was that we would see kind of early drafts of different sketches oh. of their first movie, The Secret of Kells, so cool. as they were <laughs> as they were coming through. So I had like sneak peeks and then I got to see the finished the finished item and what a finished item. Yes indeed it's it's a really beautiful film. So I think yeah the two that we're going to be talking about are The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. We'll we'll kind of take them one at a time, but yeah. just to give like a bit of an overview that The Secret of Kells is based in medieval Ireland and is exploring the monastery living in, in Ireland at that time. And then Song of the Sea is, is more, it's not necessarily present day. I think it's more like 80s. I think it's
1: late 80s. It's kind of set in the period of time that the director grew up in. Yeah, um, So it's kind of like
0: representing his childhood. But it, both of them draw from a lot of Irish folkloric traditions as well. Yeah. For this podcast, what we want to do is, first of all, just I think it's always worth shouting out people who are making great art. I think we can yes. be very cynical about how art is being made at the moment and and the quality of art. And I, we do a lot of nostalgic looking to the past and saying, wasn't it great when we did X? Mm-hmm. And we don't do things like that anymore. And I think that's a very selfish thing to do if you're not also looking out for things that you can really stand behind in, in modern culture and absolutely. say absolutely
1: and I think the Salooners are kind of like a shining light in the animation industry in terms of feature animation that's hand drawn it's just not happening anywhere else really Um and Certainly not to that level. And the fact that they're getting Oscar nominations and stuff like that. They're kind of, they're keeping it alive in an amazing way and making really beautiful things as well. It's not just for the sake of let's make a hand-drawn thing. It's like, this is being used to tell the story in the best way because it is hand-drawn
0: kind of thing. Yeah, it's not just for its own sake. It's actually for the service of a story, yeah. which all of these things should be for the sake of telling a story. Personally. There's an element of just calling out someone and saying, I think this is great. That I suppose from a Catholic point of view, what's particularly interesting is, is that for a secular storytelling group, they have done something really beautiful, which is strike a balance between representing Ireland's Christian and Catholic heritage in a way that is interesting and fascinating and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And balancing that with its, its folklore tradition. And its myths. And its superstitions even. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Just that having those two things equally be a part of an Irish culture that they're trying to preserve and promote and promulgate throughout the world. So I I think that they're great movies. I think I saw a couple of reviews from Christian and Catholic sites that were in some ways bemoaning the fact that they weren't maybe more Christian. But Mm -hmm. to me, that's kind of missing the point, which is that these are not films that are trying to be didactic christian yeah, exactly. stories they are just exploring a world uh, but uh, exploring a world in a way that isn't afraid to take on christian elements and not mitigate them and dilute them yeah in a way. absolutely
1: yeah and i think they are very respectful in the way that they treat both things as well even though it's not explicit it does never feel like they're trying to hide it away or yeah um like you say, water it
0: down. And I suppose the final element to just touch on before we get into the meat of the actual films is that I think that you come across it at certain times of the year. We're coming up to Halloween when we're recording this at the moment. And uh, I think people can get very spooked by, (laughs) by Halloween if they're from Catholic and Christian backgrounds. There can be questions around whether the whole fascination around Santa is appropriate around Christmas. People are just trying to find their way with what's the appropriate way to treat religion and treat these other stories that we have mm-hmm. in, our, in, in our culture. And I think we're also just going to make a case that what Cartoon Saloon are doing in terms of, I'm not saying blending, but representing both of them and having both of them coexist. Exactly. Is actually something that our Catholic faith is more than able to accommodate and is actually something that is potentially for the good of Catholics and people trying to follow Christ, that having an interest in these folklore stories and having them even in some ways incorporating them into the way that you see the world in a way that's distinct from faith but still has a resonance and has a respect to it Mm -hmm. is something that is actually a beautiful thing that we don't need to be so afraid of. Yeah yeah yeah. So I think those are the main points that we're gonna touch on. Maybe we should just do like a quick rundown. We're gonna start with The Secret of Kells to just give an overview of the story of it. I should probably I don't even know. I, I know from the statistics of this podcast that I do have quite a few Irish listeners, but I actually have quite a few listeners from all over the place. So I need to be careful and actually explain things that I might take for granted. Mm -hmm. So The Secret of Kells is really based on the Book of Kells, which is a real artefact from Irish history. And it's one of the most impressive and astounding medieval artefacts that we have. It's an illuminated manuscript of the Gospels. It was definitely, I, (laughs) I know from my art history classes, it was definitely made... As an object of beauty and not a book to be used, because there's actually a lot, a lot of textual mistakes in it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was definitely meant to be looked at and not yeah. read. <laughs> but it's it's the text of the Gospels. And they're illustrated, is the word we w- might use now. But yeah. they, in the in the way that we, as Catholics, would say that you write an icon instead of drawing an icon or painting an icon, which might feel more appropriate, you illuminate a manuscript, which is an important word for the animated movie, that this process of bringing light to the, the text was a very serious part of bringing the gospel. So essentially the whole thing was based on the fact that in Ireland we have this incredible, incredible book, which has these illustrations in it. And so a story was devised around it with some real historical elements, and mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just fiction. Yeah. So it's based in the monastery at Kells, and there's a boy called Brendan who is the nephew of the abbot Kellogg. Yeah. And in the monastery, the abbot is very preoccupied with building up the walls because the Vikings are coming and he's trying to protect the brothers there, but also there's just lots and lots of different kinds of people, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of people, um, and specifically also some refugees from Viking attacks. Mm. And so that is the main thrust of the monastery's work at that time. It's a preoccupation of the abbot. And there's a group of brothers. I think they're called fun things like, like... I think in one of the things I saw, one of them was just called Brother Square. And he has quite a square. Yeah. <laughs> but they are friends with Brendan and they're encouraging him to help them in the scriptorium where they're writing manuscripts and, and illuminating these manuscripts. But they're insisting to him that, like, oh, you haven't seen anything like a master would be able to blind sinners, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And they reference some of the myths around St. Colm Kill, who's on Iona, and how he had, like, he had a third eye, no, he had a third hand. (laughs) It's a a fun Um, sequence. Yeah,
1: yeah. so basically, that's kind of where we we start off, and then this master illuminator called Brother Aidan appears um, in Kells, and he has brought with him the Book of Iona, which is what will become the Book of Kells. And he basically sets up shop there, and there's some tension between him and the abbot because there's a fear. Because he's come from Iona, which has been destroyed by Vikings, um, and he's kind of fled to Kells, and so the abbot is concerned that he has now put the kind of entire community at risk by bringing this book here that is. Yeah.
0: Um, and there's just a real sense real sense of fear of anything that comes from the outside. Yes. Brendan, the poor little boy, is so specifically cut off from anything that's outside the monastery wall. Yes,
1: he he's never left, I believe. And so this brother in takes Brendan under his wing and encourages him to start looking into illuminating as a thing and he asks him to get some berries for him to create dyes, I think, for making one of the illuminated pages. So that means Brendan has to leave the monastery without informing his uncle. And once he arrives there, he comes in contact with basically... A fairy
0: who she's kind of like an, a spirit embodiment of of, of the forest. Yeah,
1: um, and
0: her name's Ashling, and she's portrayed in this instance as like a little girl. Yes and it's definitely one of those sequences in which he's sort of like taken into the world and sees the beauty of nature and then he has to return and we won't give away the whole plot but the vikings do attack and it's a fictionalized story of how the book of kells came to be and it sets up this dualism between the kind of world of fear in the monastery and then the world of nature which has all of these elements of beauty and mysticism and Mm -hmm. there's all these different potential creatures and some of them some of them are real and some of them are magical and yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting and beautiful hmm. story. And how this kind of, this world with this mystical, magical
1: world set in this forest, how that interacts with the world of the monastery and how mm-hmm. they kind of two interact with each other through the figures of Brendan and then this fairy Ashling, and how those two kind of interact with each other.
0: Yeah, and um, then I suppose there's one kind of important other... A plot point to touch on which is that the Vikings aren't the only force of evil in the story there's also, in in the forest there is the evil Krum Kruok which is this sort of worm monster yeah. that lives lives in the dark consumes everything and the the goodness of the forest is at jeopardy due to this, this, this evil preaching. part of yeah. the, the kind of more pagan elements so and brendan has to face him down mm-hmm. at, at one point <laughs> definitely in terms of the illustration that's a really fun moment they go all out with their, oh, their yeah. stylized um, it's, it's very beautiful but yeah. it's a it's a really beautifully done film the amount of attention to detail in it is just astounding like they really went to such lengths to incorporate every kind of aspect of irish art history mm, details yeah. like at one point there's just that the mists are clearing and the last little bit of shred of cloud you see is this three spiral circles together which are quite famously on our most famous neolithic monument which is Newgrange, mm-hmm. which is older than the egyptian pyramids so it's this ancient stone burials place but uh, its front rock has this very iconic three concentric circles yeah. just as the mists are clearing that that particular design is hidden in the mist you know yeah. like everywhere you look there's just these like tiny little details like Abbot Kellogg is wearing this gold lenula which is this gold collar that is, you know, you can go to our archaeology museum and see that. Yeah. It's so it's so loving in the way that it pours over these details of all aspects of Irish mm-hmm. art history and cultural history. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And then like specifically, what I think is really interesting is how they take the specific way that, like, insular art is the name of the particular kind of art that is found in the Book of Kells, and mm-hmm. it's like a particular kind of art that was in Britain and Ireland, and kind of separate from the way that art was being done in the rest of Europe at the time that it was made, and. The way that they take that artwork and bring it into the artwork of the film is really incredible. And so, like, the brother Aiden character, he's the one who's who's kind of creating these illuminations, and he's encouraging Brendan to go out into the forest, and that you will learn so much from that. And then when he goes into the forest setting, there is so much of the world that is clearly drawn from the way that things are, are are drawn in the Book of Kells. You have these beautiful spirals and kind of fractals. Yeah, it's, it's really visually stunning and so clearly drawn from the, the book itself. And so they're kind of like informing each other in a really yeah. interesting way. And then also something you were saying before we started that the trip are apparent in loads of places yeah the film.
0: he like they like split up the screen in in threes in various like very like clear ways that three things are happening in three different panels on mm-hmm. the screen and which is so much a part of Christian art history yeah but
1: um uh, like I, I mean it makes sense we're very like into Trinitarian things yeah uh, we like threes <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, like the it's it, it seems so simple, but actually, like having just three panel like a three paneled painting was something that first appeared in Christian art. It hadn't been being done before that, yeah, Um. so that's another way in which the the beauty of Christian art is informing the beauty of the film's representations of things on screen, which is yeah, so
0: exciting. I think that's what is the best thing about the secret of Kells in terms of the story it's telling is how seriously it takes. culture that it's drawing from Mm -hmm. whether that's the pagan culture or the christian culture that it takes both of those things really seriously and loves the details in them like it doesn't really spoil anything to say that the movie ends with a very long shot of the different components of the there's one page on the Book of Kells, which is the most famous page, is called the Key Row page, mm. which is it literally just means that there's an X and a P, and there's actually also an I, so it's actually the the C H R I, but it's just called Key Row for the first two letters because that's quite a common thing that comes up. So it's just the first letters of Christ's name, uh, but illustrated to like this insane degree that kind of goes beyond comprehension. Mm. That you can look at one circle, and within that is you know maybe another hundred layers of details i go crazy. further and further down <laughs> and so they just take the time to illustrate that and show all of the interlocking and interweaving mm. lines like moving into place and it's it just yeah. shows such a reverence for that material that carries over into the way that the story is being told that i really appreciate yeah. And they use animation, specifically the fact that they, it
1: is moving, mm-hmm. and almost like helps you to see it better in its static form because yeah. you have seen what it looks like when it's moving and yeah yeah, it's incredible it's and that's what they end on as well and it's just such a like it finishes and you're kind of like wow (laughs)
0: yeah
1: because they've been leading up the whole time you haven't actually like you've seen glimpses and bits of pieces of stuff that they're drawing but they wait right until the end and they've built up so much how beautiful these illustrations are and then it really It does land, you know, like it actually is as amazing as they've been
0: saying the whole way through. The hero page in the Book of Kells is one of those few things in the real world that could stand up to that kind of build up that yeah. like normally it's you're reading about it in a, it's a fantasy book and they say like oh and they arrived at this place and there was this painting and it was the most beautiful painting in the world and you couldn't possibly imagine how beautiful it is <laughs> but it feels like we have something in real life that stands up to that kind yeah. of description and that kind of loving attention to, mm-hmm. to description or whatever so that you could build up an entire movie to end on this picture and it, this picture it, is it worth works. it yeah. <laughs> so good and yeah. um, So that's, I think that's really the heart of the movie. I think in some ways the heart of The Secret of Kells is the art even more so than the story Mm. the story is actually lovely and fun and brilliant, I think it it was generally very well received, I read a lot of very positive reviews, I went and looked at some of the reviews from like a religious perspective, because it is interesting I I do think it's very interesting that a group of people who were setting up to make their mark and this is their first story Mm. and they would choose, even though they're maybe not coming from a religious perspective they still chose to say that this religious artefact is so worthy of attention that we're going to build a story around it and so I thought maybe we can just pull out a little bit of the tensions that are in the story and the tensions that are in the way that it's received, particularly among Christian people and uh, and from like people with a Catholic perspective, that mm-hmm. is this story telling something that we as Catholics can really stand behind? Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm saying it is. <laughs> 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 but um, just to draw out some of the points, I know it was definitely uh, Tom Moore has said in a bunch of interviews and, and in his writing that they were very much I, I always think it's really funny when they say sentences like we were encouraged to make it universal and not so specifically Catholic which the linguist in me just chuckles at that because the word Catholic means universal universal, (laughs) so I'm like oh that's uh, (laughs) that just makes me laugh but anyway (laughs) but that like they got a lot of advice to make it A very kind of widely appealing story, which I think, particularly for a group of people who want to make their mark on the world, that makes lots of sense to me. If you're making it from a Catholic point of view, of course you'd want to make it maybe more richly theological. But if you're not, then it doesn't necessarily make sense to be quite so kind of obsessed with the theology behind things yeah. there are certain moments that I would love to them to maybe lean into a little bit more mm. but I don't think that they've done it in a malicious way to yeah. not have it Catholic like pretend that it isn't mm. because some people were trying to I think there were some reviews that were maybe a little bit disparaging of that for me anyway I thought a lot of the faith was quite explicit they reference sinners and devils mm. and, um, prayer and prayer yeah exactly and Saints and and miraculous saints Mm. as well. Mm. I have a really pedantic point, which is that quite a few people mention that oh, they managed to make an entire movie about a religious artifact and a religious community without mentioning God once. Mm. And it is true, like that to a certain extent, that they did definitely avoid referencing that part of it over and over Mm. again but there is like to be a pedant <laughs> brendan when faced with danger starts to say the our father yeah. it's just that most people miss it because he starts to say it in irish yeah. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful moment for me and like yeah. it's quite common in irish churches to say the our father in irish yeah. and there is other bits where he speaks in irish as well it's not like they're just copying out of that one moment yeah, yeah. so i actually quite like that bit
1: but like to be honest i think we've all seen people who are coming from a secular background, try to do Christianity or try to do Catholicism, and because they don't know what they're doing, they get it wrong or yeah, they that's they, true. they represent it poorly, and almost in a way by not delving fully into it, in a way that they maybe don't have the same level of nuance of understanding. Mm-hmm. That maybe there's a sort of a level of respect there. That yeah, you know, that we can show it in this way, but we're not going to try and pretend that we.
0: Know more about the specifics than themselves. Yeah, you know? that that's really true. I think that's actually a really good point. I hadn't even thought of it that way myself. Yeah, that yeah, if anyone listens to her. Our- uh, slightly controversial episode on the, on the young pope. They'll know that. I almost never see anyone do like a confession scene correctly. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it's easier just to to visually point to things mm. to say like this is a monastery. These things are happening. Yeah. But maybe to leave like some of the the details.
1: Daredevil season one has a good confession scene, but it's done accurately. I, I have seen that one.
0: <laughs> that one's pretty good. Um, he
1: kind of calls him out on. Yeah, confessing sins that he has not yet committed. <laughs> the priest is like, mm, doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: finally (laughs) some priest in a movie who notices that there's confession scene in the musketeers season where she goes to confess but then says halfway through that she's not sorry for it and you're kind of like why are you (laughs) here then anyway that's that's an aside (laughs) and like also there's a scene when the Vikings are attacking there's a group of people congregated in the church and it is true the church is not particularly focused on in the story it's mainly between the scriptorium and the tower where Abba what Kellogg lives and he has his plans and all of his architectural drawings mm. for the walls up there. And those are the two central locations of the monastery. But they do have this scene when the Vikings are coming of them huddled in the church. And it is incredibly moving. And the music changes to Gregorian chant. And it has this very reverential religious feel to it in that moment. Which I, I find, as a, as a Christian, very moving. Mm. I really I really loved that scene, actually. I thought yeah. it was so well done. And yeah, just that I think it has a lot of love and respect for that tradition. Mm -hmm. The thing that other people have found that they felt maybe a bit uncomfortable with is there's this sense that in some ways the story sort of pits the monastery and it's sort of restrictions and fear and Abbot Kellogg is quite an imposing, angry figure with the sort of freedom and beauty and abundance of the pagan world outside. Mm. But I kind of disagree with that reading of it I I can see how people might see it that way but I don't think it's necessarily a fair reading of it I would definitely say it's more a case of how fear and and like the thing is I like it's actually quite a nuanced story in that the Abba Kellogg is shown as being angry and has a temper and he's fearful. But, you know, like we said, the Vikings do come mm. and they do wreak havoc. He does have a reason to be afraid.
1: And he's shown to be a multi-dimensional character in that he's not just the overbearing abbot who tells people what to do. Like, he's actually involved in building the wall himself. And mm-hmm. you see him taking people in who are clearly, you know, poor. And,
0: and know, he has a moment his... of, like, self-sacrifice when the Vikings are attacking. That mm. yeah, it's definitely not even though he is in a high tower that is not actually a metaphor that's really leaned into yeah. like it's not about him being in the high tower yeah, and being yeah, yeah. over it and be- lording it over people at all and that it's more to me that there's such beauty in the world around you that it's it's a shame to cut yourself off mm-hmm. from that and that god has something to give you in the world yeah. um, as well as in the monastery mm-hmm. that the two are i think the word you brought up was coexist yeah. that they have they both have a place as well mm-hmm. And like we said, there's this evil in the forest, and the good parts of the forest can't overcome the evil either. That mm-hmm. it takes someone from, like it takes Brendan from the monastery background who is encountering this evil because he wants to, it, because it's going to help him in creating the illuminations for the book. And there's this eye of Crum which is going to help them see things it's I guess like a
1: magnifying, a glass, magnifying glass in a
0: kind of way yeah. or like a, a kaleidoscope yeah. as well but, and so he faces down this evil but it's it's him coming from his faith background for a reason of faith to this place of evil to take on evil and it's, mm. he does so absolutely with, with the help of the fairy mm. and with the help of this more naturalistic folklore world but the power of the, that world wasn't able to face it off in in and of itself. Mm. So I don't necessarily think that, at very least, the film is trying to set those two things up as like in opposition to yeah. each other.
1: Like you even have the very opening monologue is this kind of beautiful sequence of this very character, Ashling, describing her life and how she's seen ages pass and darkness kind of and um, these Vikings appearing and and then she kind of ends on. But I have seen beauty thrive in the most fragile of places, and we see the round tower in in the abbey. And then she says that she like she see seen darkness turn into light through mm-hmm. through the power of the book, essentially. Yeah. And so we have this fairy character acknowledging the beauty and power of this religious yeah, yeah book
0: <laughs> yeah. and at that line, that's a really central line to the whole film is that the the book that will turn darkness into light, yeah, but that line is actually taken from so I don't know if you know this. there's the cat character who is brought by Brother Aiden. it's mm-hmm. his cat called Pangorban, who is based on a Poem that was scribbled by a monk in one of the manuscripts where he was like really bored one night. And he, <laughs> he essentially just wrote this little poem to his cat called Pangarban, mm. and the last line is that turns darkness into light. Right. So they took that and the character of Pangarban and put he it kind of into this. Together, yeah. um, but so like yeah, exactly. That it has this ability to have like that the, this fairy has respect for this book that turns darkness yeah. into light. I suppose from a purely like selfish point of view, that is the one area that. I would love to have seen them lean into more is what is in this book that makes it so special. Yes, it's the illustrations, but what were the illustrations serving? They were serving the gospel and they were serving the story of Jesus. And like, particularly for me, this key role page, like I said, it's the letters of the name of Christ. And this page is the one that's turning darkness into light. And isn't it significant that that's his name? Yeah that's doing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would come from a tradition that would say, you know, there is power in the name of Jesus, that this page which has these illustrations has this power, but it almost has this power because of the letters that it's conveying. Yeah. That, to me, is so beautiful and so powerful. And it's not that it's not there, but they just don't, they kind of yeah. leave it up to to you to, to kind of to fill, in those, out, yeah. fill in those blanks. Um, yeah, if you know, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, you know, like I said, if you're coming from it from a Catholic point of view, it gives this great teaching moment where you can say... Like that's what this book is about, but then I guess for secular audiences, it's not being put in their face. Yeah, and it's very... not kind of isolating
1: them out of the story because they don't, you know, they're not familiar with
0: that. Yeah, it's not taking them away from what they're they're looking at. Yeah. But but I suppose for me, just on a personal part, that's the one bit where I'm like, oh, I'd love to see them like <laughs> lean into this because why is this book so important other than the fact that it's pretty mm. and Cause yeah, they, they keep on talking about how the book
1: needs to be brought out to give hope to the people yeah (laughs) it's like Um, hope for what
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah the other thing that I kind of would have loved to see them do is that to embrace some more of the the mythological I'm saying that kind of in, in inverted commas that it's not quite the right words but the the sort of more supernatural elements of like Christian and Catholic traditions, yeah. and especially at that time, like they have that funny little aside with Saint Column Kill where it's like, "Oh, his third eye, or no, it's yeah. his third hand." But in some ways, that's almost like a joke, yeah. um, or like it's uh, people talking about something they don't quite understand. Mm. And it, it to me, it would have been fun to see more, more miraculous and inverted commas magical power yeah. coming from the the Christian side but you know like I understand in terms of the story that you're telling you just kind of need one part of his life to be one way and this other world to be another way
1: and again I think it could have been a hard line to tread coming from secular people who are making the thing
0: yeah ultimately i think it's it's such a a wonderful movie one of the reviews it was in the image journal revealing the secret of kells they said all through the movie i was increasingly excited by the fact that the book of kells is reconciling all of these pagan mythologies and artistic motifs into a unified whole at the center of which is the gospel Which I thought was like just a lovely way to sum it up, and also I should—I just want to catch myself for a second. We're talking about how Irish it is. I do want to shout out—they did this in collaboration with French and Belgian animators, Mm. so I don't want to exclude them. They are (laughs) very—they are very much a part, and it's also fitting because you were talking about the insular art, but like within that, I think there's Latin design, which is this interlocking design, which has evidence in Central Europe, particularly in France, hence the word Latin. Mm -hmm. So there is that kind of um catholic universal <laughs> element that has has these two places connected yeah. by by their art and by their faith so just i i don't yeah, want to i don't want anyone to out. feel like I, <laughs> I, I haven't i haven't forgotten about yeah. some part of it but yeah i thought it, to me it was such a brave and bold look at how a secular world could embrace some elements of the Catholic and Christian, Christian tradition that they come from but without eradicating the other elements yeah. as well so that was The Secret of Kells yeah and I guess the next thing is to move on to Song of the Sea which only improves on The Secret of Kells <laughs> Song of the Sea is one of the most beautiful things that I've ever watched mm-hmm. it's stunning it, it it definitely harkens even more to like studio ghibli like you were saying yeah but it's so completely enriched in its own irish culture yeah. i would really recommend anyone to watch it it's a really beautiful film mm-hmm. the story is really based on it's a irish and scottish myth of selkies which are women who transform into seals and they're often connected with stories of women Maybe like leaving their family homes and going missing or dying in childbirth or something that they took on the forms of seals and swam away. So they are very linked to the idea of grief. And the story is about a family. The, there's the father and wife, Brona, Brona who is aptly named. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorrow. <laughs> so the, there's this family of the, like the parents and this little boy, Ben. Yeah. And the the mother, Brona, is pregnant with their second child. And shortly after the child is born, she swims away and becomes a selkie and seems to be ill in some way. Something <laughs> happens. And so... Ben is then left without his mother and is very grief stricken. And the sister that he was kind of looking forward to having, he's now very resentful of and angry yeah. of. And the sister, Saoirse, doesn't speak and she's a little bit odd. Mm. And his father becomes more of a recluse. They, they already live on like a little island with a lighthouse, but <laughs> he's sinking into his own grief and depression after this. Yeah. And so Ben's granny comes to take them away and take takes them down to Dublin and uh, to try and like take them away from all of this. And Ben decides that he doesn't want to do this and tries to get back to his family home and, and it kind of sneaks away and finds that Saoirse follows him. So it's the two of them trying to get back to back to their home. But all the while, Saoirse is getting more and more ill oh. and sick because she's separated from... It, ter- it turns out she's been separated from a coat which is important to her because she is also a selkie. And so the further away from the coast she is, the more ill she becomes. And there's two elements going on where there's the stories that... There's the story that we're talking about and then there's also these elements of... The stories that Ben was told by his mother that turn out to be real. So there's the fairies, which are called the Dinashe here, mm-hmm. and there's different. There's a there's a legend of uh, a great giant who is so grief stricken that he was um, going to drown himself in his own tears, and mm-hmm. so his mother Maka took away his feelings, and he turned to stone, yes, which becomes an island. Then, so as they're making their way back home, these elements become, it turns out they're more and more real. Mm. And so the, the kids now have to interact with this new mythological and folklore element to their world yeah. as and have a bit of a showdown with that in order to get home. Yeah, It's a really clever, in some ways, as, as I'm going to explain it, you realise <laughs> what a kind of complex story it is to explain, but what a simple story it is to mm. watch. And it's very, very cleverly done that you have yeah. these two strands, the one of like the modern 80s story of two kids and then like uh, they seem to get dragged more and more into this mythological world mm. that's clinging on by its fingernails to this modern world yeah. that like it's still just about there. And how the two kind of mirror each other as well. Throughout. Yeah, and again, there's a real love for the landscape of Ireland. I think they do a really great job of Dublin. <laughs> um, they, it's so recognisable and it is so nostalgic, but it's also its own like, bustling, grimy... Um, yeah. It's so different to the clean world of the countryside. Yeah, it, it, it feels
1: a lot more tight and compressed as well. Mm-hmm. Like, all the spaces are much closed in. Ingebar, like, you just have these big open spaces for the, the countryside scenes. And, yeah, like, the, the way that they visually you feel it just based on the way that they've like framed things and stuff which is great
0: yeah it's hard to explain how pretty it is in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. um, they do such a, a great job of, of all of the animation in it it's so clever in the way that again it incorporates elements and has these little like hints and it, they're almost like easter eggs that if you know your irish history and your irish art history that you're like oh i recognize that yeah, yeah, yeah. And, There's this more recognising things that are so ubiquitously Irish. Like in the granny's house, there's the picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus with the little red light under it. And you're like, oh, I know that one well. (laughs) That was in my granny's house. (laughs) Um, And just those those clever little moments that are so familiar for an Irish audience. But like we said, are still very accessible and very captivating for any kind of audience. And so for this one, in terms of like, clearly, it's very much more about the folklore elements but I in some ways it is and it isn't it's more about how the old traditions whether they be catholic ones or more pagan ones have fallen by the wayside Mm -hmm. and aren't taken seriously anymore and are like I said clinging on by their fingernails to Irish society and so it's not similar to The Secret of Kells in that it's definitely not Christian tradition going up against this more folklore tradition. Yeah. The Christian tradition is very much more just sprinkled throughout yeah, it. The yeah, a background element. Yeah, but done in a way that is still something that has kind of resonance and, and a respect to it. Uh, Stephen Graydanis, who I've quoted quite a number of times in whenever I, I go to talk about movies on this podcast, but he has a really great review of it where he says, in the world of this film, Irish Christianity is now ancient, but still coexists with the lingering memory of elves and fairies. Not far from a gothic church adorned by statues of the Blessed Virgin, one might discover, perhaps on a tree-covered roundabout, a fairy fort with stone figures representing the fair folk called the Dina the people of the mounds. While Song of the Sea includes, if anything, more Catholic iconography than Kells, It doesn't deal directly with religious life or practice and doesn't pit the Catholic and mythic milieus against one another. While it's true that the wondrous climax belongs to the world of the fairy statues and landmarks, not the Catholic ones, this is, after all, only one particular story on one particular Halloween night. The movie's aesthetic enchants its whole world, suggesting the possibility that on some other night, perhaps the next night, All Saints Day, another story might be told about the Catholic images and artefacts. Which I think that's lovely and I think that really gets it. Yeah, I
1: think there is this one crucial sort of linchpin scene for the relationship of Ben and Saoirse. And Tom Ward's actually talked about it because they had quite a dedicated blog when they were making the film and they, they wrote a lot about the process. And basically they're travelling back and is getting more and more ill and she eventually collapses and then it starts raining <laughs> and so they have to find somewhere to shelter for a bit and they come across this holy well and enter inside it and this is just some stuff Tom Moore said about it basically they had one of the big influences on them was Hayao Miyazaki's work and particularly I think my neighbor Totoro and there's if you know anything about Ghibli films you will know that scene of the two little girls huddling underneath the umbrella but there's another very important scene where they're huddling in a kind of a Japanese shrine of, of sorts That that's very important to their relationship and so they want to echo that that moment of like having a breather where everything can settle and people can figure out where they are. So for a long time, they were thinking about putting it in a dolmen.
0: Which are three standing stones with one enormous capstone on top of them. The dolmens are found, I think they're throughout the British Isles, but there's quite a lot of them in Ireland. Mm -hmm. But
1: eventually they said that, as the story evolved, we hit on the idea of this shelter actually being a gateway to another world, hidden from the mundane everyday we live in. I've always been fascinated by Holy Wells where people come to pray and often leave totems or offerings of the person they are praying for. This strangely public remnant of someone's deepest concerns is often quite touching when you visit one especially, if it has a photo or personal effect of some sort from a long time ago. I find myself wondering if the person who made the prayer found comfort or if their loved one ever recovered. The link with water and our own childhood memories of being taken to pray at these special places made us decide to change the gateway from a dolmen to a holy well. And I think that's really fascinating because obviously the film was, was set in the the period of Tom Moore's childhood, so it's quite interesting how this this Catholic symbol of kind of holy wells was something that they were familiar with in a way that they maybe weren't as familiar with in in Dolmens as, as something that was tied to their childhood and something that they yeah. they knew as like a ritual and also very symbolically
0: fits in with the themes of the film in terms of sorrow and loss and mm-hmm. um, and the mysterious nature of water yeah yeah and i it's a really interesting moment because it's so unmissably catholic mm. for those who uh, those of our listeners who don't necessarily know what a, like a holy well looks like it's just a well with a stone mound i guess or like it can be like a little building built over it typically and it represents it quite accurately here as just being covered with (laughs) statues of Mary and statues of Jesus and pictures of them both and Tom Moore was saying there the items like I saw a pair of glasses and the different kind of tokens from the people that they're praying for that it's just and there's rosary beads, and there's, you know, little candles everywhere, that it's so unmissably Mm. a part of this Catholic world. Yeah. And and in some ways, like, they were quite brave to put that in in the middle of this otherwise very Irish folklore story. And like you said, the fact that it also comes at this really climactic moment is really beautiful. I really like it. Yeah, Uh, it becomes the point where
1: Ben decides to actually take really seriously Circe being ill and um, she goes into the Holy Well and then he has to go follow her. But it's kind of his, it's the point where he decides, no, I'm actually going to look after her and I'm actually going to, you know.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really telling. This leads into our other section of this podcast, which is looking at this balance between folklore traditions and, and Catholic traditions. But it always reminds me, I don't think it's quite the phrase that's used, but I know that Pope Gregory, when he was sending St. I think it's Augustine, not St. Augustine of Hippo, (laughs) 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 to be a missionary to England. He says, like, bless their holy wells. He talks about reuse their temples if they haven't been defiled by by certain things. Like, some people use that as an example to say that, like, oh, Christianity is just a veneer over... paganism but that if you read the the whole section of that in context it that's definitely not what he's saying and it's also missing the point which is that we can look at what's good in these traditions and point them towards christ so a lot of the holy wells i'm sure have been holy for even longer than Christianity has been in this country, Mm. which is a long, long time, but (laughs) that we can actually have this continuity that says there's a reason why something in the human soul was drawn to this place for healing and renewal, and that we know the full truth of the Catholic faith, and so we can point this this truth towards God, and in doing so sanctify what that was. Mm. And so that the two things aren't in contention... And that from our point of view, anyway, that one is the fulfillment of the other. And that because it's the fulfillment, it doesn't need to reject what came before in such virulent terms that break that connection, have nothing to do with it. That it actually says, no, there was good things and that we can fulfill those good things. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's a great scene. The other thing that I think is really beautiful about the Song of the Sea in terms of the theology and morality around it is... While that particular moment is the set piece and and for the rest of the story, it's really centered on these folklore elements, Mm -hmm. that the message and the story really build towards something that I think a Christian audience would really resonate with, which is that grief and sorrow and anguish are things that need to be experienced Mm -hmm. and that taking them away and bottling them up and cutting them off from people so that they don't have any emotion doesn't result in anything that can be called happiness Mm. and that you just lose your humanity and it literally shows people turning to stone that you have to be able to take up your cross I guess in a way that you have to be able to embrace the suffering of the world and turn again turn that towards good. Mm. That true compassion because there's this character called Maka like I said who was the mother of Maka and takes away his emotions and then she starts doing that for other people as well and she has this real like practice and rehearsed speech where she's she's convincing people that surely that's the most compassionate thing I could do is take away their pain mm-hmm. how could you ever say that taking away someone's pain is not the compassionate thing to do yeah. and not the loving thing to do and I think that's a an argument that we can get very taken in by it's very easy to say that the best thing for anyone in any situation is to take away their pain. But unfortunately, that's not actually true of the world. Mm. That taking pain out of the equation entirely only serves in making you less human and less able to experience the world. And that actually the working
1: through of that pain can actually bring you potentially much faster to a true joy um, and living through that and working through it uh, and coming out kind of the other side.
0: Yeah as we're recording this we're not long after a particular video becoming pretty viral which was an interview between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert where Anderson Cooper is really pressing Stephen Colbert on something that he said which He's, he, he quotes directly from Tolkien and talks about the own bereavement that he's had in his own family. And he quotes him as saying, What punishments of God are not gifts? And I think that's such a, a counterintuitive thing for us to understand. And Stephen Colbert does a really good a, a job of explaining why that is true and why it doesn't mean that you say that you're like happy that something bad happened or that you are glad that it happened. But that you can see how it brings you into a closer communion with the world around you mm-hmm. and allows you to love people more deeply and connect with them more sincerely it's a, I, I would actually really I wasn't expecting to like that video but I, I thought it was actually very moving and similarly that, that that message in the Song of the Sea was not actually one that I was particularly expecting to get from that movie. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful movie of, yeah. of self-sacrifice and embracing pain and not shutting it out. Mm-hmm. So I mean, overall, I think that's yeah. <laughs> like what, what more recommendation do you need for a movie? Go and watch it. <laughs> Go and watch all of them. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good sum up of why these movies are great and everyone should watch them. I think we're going to just take maybe a little bit longer to talk about that potential tension between Catholic faith and the practice of Catholic faith and the embrace of fairy stories. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I had to really think about. And in some ways, it was clearer in my mind when you're just talking about stories. We're going to be quoting, I think, a bit from Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and all of <laughs> all, all of those great people. And they talk a lot about why teaching stories to kids is a good thing um, when it comes to these like fairy stories and myths and legends. But the question started arising in my head, like, well, where do you draw the line? Because I know it's not specific to Ireland, but I know from an Irish point of view that there has been, and certainly it still exists presently, but certainly up to very recently was still very present. A lot of, I guess, superstitious behaviours, like you couldn't get planning permission to build roads over fairy mounds, like <laughs> people would protest, mm-hmm. that uh, there was a reality to the to the stories of fairies and whatnot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so from a Catholic point of view, where, where do you draw that line? Where does it become... Uh, pagan worship i guess would be the term i, I tried looking for uh, clarity from it I, it was a little bit hard to research you find you suddenly find all of the keywords mean different things at different for different people so like is christianity a myth comes up when you start searching for like christian belief in myth right. yeah. <laughs> so i would love to to delve into it a bit more but i have been thinking about it and asking people about it and yeah, it's it's been interesting to form some solid opinions on it which I'm very glad for my own sake to report that there is room for a love of and cherishing of folklore traditions within the Catholic faith. Which is not to say that that's the same as being like a buffet, pick what you want, cafeteria, Christian and and Catholic. I'm not advocating for that. When you are trying to follow a Catholic life, you do need to embrace uh, what's being asked of you and it does mean forsaking other forms of belief. But that Catholicism is a fascinatingly complex and an interesting approach to looking at the world. And that it has a lot of room for a lot of narrative and strange bits in it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it can accommodate a lot. Um, I think something that Tolkien would definitely say about fairy stories as a whole is that they help to make imaginatively real the idea that our world is beautiful and spiritual and enchanted and that there is more than just what is physically present in front of you, um, wow. and especially like when telling fairy stories to children, it, it creates a, a sense in which there is more out there than, than what is just physically tangible in front of you. And he actually has this really beautiful quote in his book on fairy stories, which is is a fantastic collection of like one part of it is is specifically him talking about why fairy stories are good and why we should appreciate them, and then he also has. A beautiful poem and a really gorgeous short story, um, called *On Tree and Leaf*, that I just would recommend to anyone. It's it's relatively short and it's a meditation on old age and what the experience of heaven might be like in like a tiny little glimpse, chink kind of a way. Uh, so yeah, so this is what he says: Fantasy can, of course, be carried to excess. It can be ill done. It can be put to evil uses. It may even delude the minds out of which it came. But of what human thing in this fallen world is not true? Men have conceived not only of elves, but they have imagined gods and worshipped them, even worshipped those most deformed by their author's own evil. But they have made false gods out of other materials, their nations, their banners, their monies, even their sciences and their social and economic theories have demanded human sacrifice. Fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode, because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. And I just think it's such a cool, mm. the idea that, uh, and Tolkien has this great idea of like sub that we, because we were made by a maker, we have this drive to make things. And yep. sort of our fairy stories and our fantastical things that we create prop up that true underlying reality of existence.
0: Yeah. And, It's spot on. I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis, which is very much on this topic. and Mm -hmm. It's no coincidence that they both thought of this in a very similar way. (laughs) But he says this is an article called Three Objections to Fairy Tales and C.S. Lewis's Response. And it's a quote that says, Most children don't really want there to be dragons in modern England. Instead, the desire is for they know not what. This desire for something beyond does not empty the real world, but actually gives it new depths. He does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all the real woods a little enchanted.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which I think is so true. And it actually really relates to how the Song of the Sea was created in the first place. Tom Moore says in a lot of his interviews that it came from, he was with his son by the beach down in Dingle and he saw that they were culling a lot of seals. And someone there commented that First of all, the reason they were doing this was because the seals were infringing on on the number of fish that the fishermen were able to catch, but that previously they would have never done that because of the fear and reverence that they would have had for selkies. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying in that particular instance that those people were evil or something like that, but that there was a real sense of reverence and awe and wonder to the world that as we see the dereliction of duty that's been done to our environment at the moment, Mm -hmm. we could do with a little bit more wonder and awe and fear of our natural world that comes from a place of, you know, the Franciscan friars walk in sandals because the whole world is sacred, you know, Mm -hmm. that you're barefoot across the whole world. Mm -hmm. um, That as Tolkien was saying that it is made by the maker and yeah. so seeing the world and as he was just saying that like as humans we need to embellish things we need to make them a fantasy in order to make them real yeah yeah uh and so having these traditions and having these stories and having these parts of our culture be more relevant and be more present i think is a good thing and yeah. and does contribute to a love of the world Mm. and love of the world in a really positive way Mm. and that these fairy tales can teach us morality I think a lot of people feel like fairy stories are about sort of worlds in which that morality doesn't count in the same way Mm. and actually Chesterton has a really fun beautiful response to this as chesterton is wont to do (laughs) this is in his i think it's just called fairy tales but it's in his book all things considered and he says if you really read fairy tales you will observe that one idea runs from one end of them to the other the idea that peace and happiness can only exist on some condition this idea which is the core of ethics is the core of nursery tales the whole happiness of fairyland hangs on a thread upon one thread Cinderella may have a dress woven on supernatural looms and blazing with unearthly brilliance, but she must be back when the clock strikes twelve. The king may invite fairies to the christening, but he must invite all the fairies, or frightful results will follow. Bluebeard's wife may open all doors but one. A promise is broken to a cat, and the whole world goes wrong. A promise is broken to a yellow dwarf, and the whole world goes wrong. (laughs) A girl may be the bride of the god of love himself if she never tries to see him. She sees him and he vanishes away. A girl is given a box on the condition she does not open it. She opens it and all the evils of the world rush out at her. A man and a woman are put in a garden on the condition that they do not eat one fruit. They eat it and lose their joy in all the fruits of the earth. Not only can these fairy tales be enjoyed because they are moral, but morality can be enjoyed because it puts us in fairyland in a world at once of wonder and of war. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that also, just that last line also hints at something else, which is that I am by no means accrediting any of the miracles of our traditions to just fairy stories. That's not what I'm trying to say. The miracles of Christ are something that gives me hope on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. But we do have, particularly in the stories of saints, elements that are you know, I guess, up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone wants to challenge me on this, I will immediately raise the example of the tradition that St. Christopher was a cynocephali, i.e. a giant dog who talked. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's true. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that I think that the Catholic Church has an approach which I really like, which is, says that some things are worthy of devotion, whether or not we can completely ascertain their veracity. Mm. And that that's not to say that there are no miracles, I don't believe that I think there are miracles in the Bible there are miracles in Catholic tradition but that some things are taken on faith and some things are almost holy as a result of the devotion to them Mm. whether or not the incident was the thing it was as it began or whether, I know we've got like lots of different relics that may or may not be true, but that the act of coming to them with a, a devotion of sincerity and Christian belief bestows on them some element of grace Mm -hmm. that is worth coming to again and again you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) even the wikipedia entry for folk catholicism because that's the term folk catholicism ties into a lot of these more as we would say in catholicism there's capital t tradition and then there's small t tradition (laughs) and then even below that you can have like a very very small t (laughs) (laughs) but even even the wikipedia entry gives quite a a positive view on this, it says the Roman Catholic Church takes a pragmatic and patient stance towards folk Catholicism. For example, it may permit pilgrimages to the site of reported apparitions, e.g. Medjugorje, without endorsing or condemning belief in the reported apparitions, and will often declare Marian apparitions and similar apparitions worthy of belief, e.g. Our Lady of Fatima, or will confirm the cult of local saints without actually endorsing or recommending belief. When the Roman Catholic Church considers that there is a blatant heresy occurring, it actively rejects it and tells Catholics to stay away from such practices. Which I think is great. And that's what Catholicism can offer with its ability to have authority over certain things. That it can say, actually, this takes it too far. This Mm. This will take away from your faith. This is something that is against certain elements of our faith. But that, you know, beyond that, that there is a lot of room for encountering God in a, in a variety of ways yeah. in the world.
1: Yeah and things I
0: think complement what is true to existence
1: and yeah and that don't in any way take away from from what is actually present
0: you know yeah and I think C.S. Lewis because he was really converted on that notion because he found these stories the myths the legends the fairy stories initially more compelling than the story of Christ and it took Tolkien and I think their friend Dyson to sort of talk him round to (laughs) to the Christian point of view but with that came a real understanding that like I was saying before that all of these things come from a yearning for good yeah and that they they have their fulfilment in Christianity, and that means that we can embrace the good that's in them. Yeah, and
1: I think that word yearning is very important in that. So much of what is kind of physically tangible, it's already there. There's mm-hmm. there's nothing to look for or seek for. Fairy tales and these fantastical stories do they they inspire that sense of wonderment in the world and yeah. Can't
0: see that for a good thing. <laughs> yeah, there is a, quite a good article on the Catholic Exchange called The Importance of Myth and Fairy Tales for Christian Children, which is about, I think it's a mother who wrote it, it was talking about her children's experience of... Of these stories and how they had the ability to differentiate between their faith and their faith in the Eucharist as something real and tangible. And how I think she talks about one of her kids banishing the monsters under the bed by telling them about Jesus, (laughs) but how they're still able to differentiate between those two things. like they're not the same. And it says for children as well, the imaginative world they create based on the myths and fairy stories they hear gives credit to the truth of Christianity. Christianity, the acts of the true God are in line with reason. They fit with science and they, while often baffling, ultimately make sense when we look at what humanity is ultimately striving for. The desire of Orpheus to be with his dead wife is fulfilled in Christ. The unfulfilled desires of the people in the myths are not attractive to someone seeking ultimate fulfillment, but we see that only Christianity can fulfill the deepest desires of humanity. Mm. So I just think that, to come back to the Cartoon Saloon movies, that they're such a great example of how we can cherish both traditions within our history Mm. and have the good of one point to the good of the other. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much us. Summed up. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I only have one last question, which is, what are you, Robin, enjoying at the moment? Um,
1: at the moment I'm enjoying, I'm a little bit late to the party because I think this came out a,
0: a while ago, but our
1: family have been watching Man in the High Castle. We're on season three. It's basically set in alternative history where the Nazis won World War Two, and America's split into three. So you have One side that's Nazi-controlled, one side that's Japanese-controlled, and that's kind of a buffer area in the middle. And it's really fascinating and compelling and a really interesting look into the psychology of just people and how ordinary, seemingly good people can take it in by ideas. Um, And, yeah, it's, it's great.
0: I know the book, but I haven't actually managed to catch up on it myself but that seems like quite a lofty thing I'm gonna say I was enjoying Bake Off (laughs) Uh, for me Bake Off has just started back and it's great and I was really sad by the first person to leave but it's all good there's a there's a good bunch of people I enjoyed a lot I have a friend Zoe who watches it with me we text each other while we're watching it and it is some good wholesome TV I would really recommend Wonderful. so other than that I think we're all finished up only left for me to say thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed it please subscribe on your various podcast apps please leave a review uh, maybe share it Uh, follow us on um, twitter i'm at seeking watson and on instagram as well but i've also got a risking enchantment instagram which is just risking enchantment podcast And so you can find some quotes and some nice pictures and stuff like that. It's very pretty. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm quite proud of it. So head on over to Instagram to check us out there. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.